In the spring of 2020, the disturbing killings of several unarmed Black Americans sparked a massive racial reckoning for many in the United States and across the world. While racial injustice and systematic discrimination of people of color hadn't exactly been a secret beforehand, for many millions, the stark contrast of what it was like to exist as a white person from what it was like to exist as a person of color became startlingly more clear. Many were called into self-scrutinization and reflection and felt an urgent need to talk and learn and listen and share. But the world was still in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time, we were felt called to come together to be in conversation, especially about race, we were stuck apart. Thankfully, two friends named Izo and Hannah had already more than a year prior, began to undertake the important work of facilitating cross-racial dialogues. They join us today to share what they've learned about normalizing hard conversations about racism. They say that real friends talk about race. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We're joined today by Izo, Hoflit, Bogtanabana, and Hannah Summerhill. They are the hosts of the award-winning podcast, Kinswomen, which was named one of the best podcasts of 2020 by Elle, Cosmopolitan, and Marie Claire. Izu and Hannah are also the authors of the 2023 book, Real Friends Talk About Race, Bridging the Gaps Through Uncomfortable Conversations. Izu, you identify as a Rwandan, Jewish, and queer woman. Izu is also a fashion designer. She's an art and social advocate and sits on the board of the Professional Organization for Women in the Arts, or POW Arts. That's a nationally recognized 501c3 nonprofit organization. Isu is also an expert research fellow at the Tel Aviv Institute, which is a multidisciplinary laboratory focused on uplifting those of Jewish faith and other minorities online and offline through innovative social media-driven strategies. Isu, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Let's welcome your co-author, Hannah Summerhill. Hannah describes herself as a white Jewish woman living in Southern California. She comes from a long career in magazines, working in advertising sales at places like Vogue, Cosmopolitan, and Women's Health. As a writer, Hannah has written for brands like Vogue, Elle, and New York Magazine, as well as Refinery29. She also sits on the board of her city's Equality Coalition and enjoys playing guitar in her free time. Hannah, welcome to the news story, is and thank you as well for joining us. Thank you, Dave. I'm happy to be here. So, Isu and Hannah, in your book called Real Friends Talk About Race, even before introducing us to the story of how you two met and became friends, you each make a point to share your identities and the life experiences that you've had through the lens of your social, racial, gender, religious, and sexual identities. Astute listeners would have, will have just heard that in each of your bios when you were introduced, you also led with those identities to introduce yourselves as well. Uh, so I wonder if we could start with you, and I wonder why is it important to lead with these identifiers when we're introducing ourselves, especially when we're about to talk about race and racism? Yeah, I think that it's going to create context that where someone is coming from, um, 
where they speaking from and through which lens they are like viewing the world. Um, in my specific experience, I can share identities with other people that look like me and that have the same identities as me, but we're, we still might have different perspective in that and, you know, feelings about that. But I think it's really important in context to, you know, share how we identify, how we feel about, you know, who we are as part of this conversation specifically. Yeah. Hannah, I want to ask the same question to you. Why for you is it is a conversation, uh, like a starting point for these conversations feel important when we kind of self-identify and disclose the not maybe exactly what we have, have experienced about the world, but the lens through which we see it? What comes up for you? This is a great question because I think usually when we are you know, listening to people's stories, whether it's on podcasts, if because it's not a visual medium, we often don't know the perspectives of people unless they explicitly share. And often with us as white people, if we don't share our race, it usually means that we are white. And that I think is problematic in the sense that whiteness we see as the default, as something that doesn't even need to be named or defined. So in this work specifically, and I really think in a lot of places, it's important to identify yourself that way if you're white identifying. So in our work, I always make sure if people can't see us, that they know that I'm a white woman. Obviously, you know, people can be white passing, but still have other identities. So I just think for the clarity of our work, it's important to lead with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose I try to disclose my own identities in different episodes when we're having a conversation like this, but I suppose it'd only be fair to to mention my own too. Um, so I, I identify as a white cisgender heterosexual man. I'm American and of European ancestry. Um, I currently have no disabilities, born and raised Catholic. I no longer identify as Christian or religious. I grew up middle upper class. I think I've had all of them but especially a conversation about race, identifying as white and of European descent. How did I do? Did, you, did I do okay? Yeah. Yeah. And sounds <laughs> right. like you hit the privileged jackpot upon birth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding, Hannah. It, it, it is a smorgasbord of privileged identities. And, and I, I mean, it is really important to disclose those things and to, um, as much as I, I know you two have, have um, discussed in the past, this idea of like dis, what, somebody who's trying to be an ally also feeling this pull to distance oneself from whiteness. And I can definitely say myself, like I, I, I love to like dump on whiteness um, at every turn and like make fun of white culture and different things and like kind of like a, you know, like inappropriate humor sort of way with, with friends and, and not in a way that's um, hopefully hurtful or harmful, but it also really is important, obviously, like you're saying in this conversation to, to take responsibility and ownership of, of a white identity, especially. So, um, with that, let's talk about your origin story, because the story of how you two met is really important for the work that you would go on to do and for your book and for your podcast. So, Isu, let's start with you. Uh, I understand that you and Hannah met at an event about race, and I think it was January of 2019. So it was a little over, it was like four and a half years ago now. And this is before, of course, the events of that that big racial reckoning I was talking about, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States in 2020. Um, and in the book 
So you say that you stepped forward at an event about race in, I think it was in New York City at a co-working space, to call attention to a, di a dynamic that you saw playing out in the room that day among the white women and the women of color who are effectively supposed to be having a, a cross-racial dialogue about race. Could you take us back to that day and describe what you remember witnessing and experiencing and also what you wanted to call the room's attention to that day? Mm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, like going to that event, I remember feeling really uncomfortable and like wondering if the co-working space had more than one location. But I had it was my first time going to the location in Brooklyn. Um, and so I was excited about that, but I was also super apprehensive about what type of dynamic this was going to be because the, the club was just predominantly white. And I had already reached out to the club saying like, I'm seeing really weird things happen and this is gonna, this is gonna have an effect on like your space. And so they kind of brushed it off and were like, thank you so much for reaching out to us. So I was like, this is going to be either a shit show or a really great opportunity for people to exchange. So I was like literally uncomfortable and, and nervous about being there. And I was just a spectator. And then I realized that they were inviting people into a circle participate, which I thought was brilliant. The idea was brilliant. The setup was brilliant. The guests, uh, the, the guest speakers were really amazing, interesting. But it just turned out to be this like voyeuristic thing where the minority in the room were participating actively. So engaging emotionally and intellectually into this conversation. And the white women were just watching and just being as non, uh, how do you say this? Like as passive as possible, which I think kind of uh, demonstrates the existing dynamics that that happens within these conversations for the most part. Uh, we expect minorities to be the person that speaks up because we have so much to lose. Like we have, we, it's up to us for things to change. It always has been up to us and it was, and it's always thanks to us that things change, even for the greater good of just people, you know, minority and non-minority. And white women benefit from every change that happened uh, without even participating. So I thought it was, it was like, saddening to see it play out exactly the way I know it already exists um and so I called it out I didn't want to participate I didn't want to like I I was so grateful for the ones that wanted to reach out and wanted to apply the empathy that they felt but I was so uh I wasn't surprised by how the the thing played out it was just like wow this is sad but but I wanted to be part of it and I did but by calling it out yeah. Yeah. And so obviously, like this experience that you had naturally is the culmination to your entire life and experience as a person of color and seeing it happen again. Right. And that's mm -hmm. something that I think from a white perspective, without the context of like learning as we do in your book about your experiences and and growing up um, in, in various places, but having similar experiences um as a person of color, whether it's in Europe, whether that it's in it's in Africa, whether it's in North America, that it took it takes me as a white guy a minute to go, oh, this is like a it's it's such a repeat pattern. 
I can't imagine how frustrated I would be if I was living this experience and seeing it happen mm. again and again and again and again. For someone that's just being introduced to this idea of like privilege and race and like the differences of our experience, I also see the opportunity, the unfair opportunity for someone to like point the finger at you and say like, why do you have to make this so uncomfortable? Why why are you doing this? When of course it's it's the culmination of like a lifelong events. Um, is that is that an appropriate way to summarize like yeah, yeah, that dynamic? Yeah, I think that uh, it. I mean, even though it was really uncomfortable to see it played out, and I, I just foresaw really like huge discomfort. I just, I, it, you know, so when you see something and you're just like, "This is so, it's just bullshit." Like <laughs> this is so, it's like bullshit, and and yet again, it's like this like play out of like wanting to feel good. It's not meant to fix anything. It's meant for people to look good. And it was meant for the space to look good, to be like, oh, let's put this thing where we put people together and try to like fix things. But without creating a culture that really like teaches people how to have this conversation, how to address these, this, uh, how to address this and how to find a solution, it just feels performative. It looks performative and it's so annoying. And that's why in the book and just in general, I always say that, you know, minorities, if they don't want to be part of this, fixing and if they don't want to be part of like this like oh let's all get along and they want to be in their own community and completely disconnect themselves from this type of conversation uh I totally understand it and everyone should understand so that I don't I don't expect it from anyone um from minority or like historically oppressed communities to have to do anything when they, the culture is still the same in these spaces where it feels so performative Right. And then we start talking about themes like internalized oppression and like blaming people of color or people from from marginalized identities for like not doing the work when they're already Mm. it just becomes this like really vicious cycle. Uh, So I I thank you for that. Yeah. Anna, you were also there, of course, in the room that day. And so I want to hear a little bit about what you remember from your experience. But also our listeners may think that, you know, knowing what we know now that you're on this podcast together with me. You have a podcast together. You co-wrote a book together that like you stepped up to the plate. You must have said something heroic. You, you know, fixed the situation or or you approached you so and you and you became like instant BFFs and like high fived and like solved racism on the spot. That's not exactly what happened. And you introduced us to what really happened in, in the book. Could you tell us about your memory, your recollection and what that was like for you? Yes. Um, yeah. No heroism from me at all. I was exactly the kind of white woman that Izu was describing. I was sitting in the back row. There was a lot of people there and there was a very small percentage who got up to participate. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable to the point where I almost didn't go that evening. Um, But I ended up going and I was really struck by what Izu said. And I recognized that I was really sitting there as a voyeur because I was so nervous to speak up. I didn't know what to contribute. I didn't want to take up space the whole point of the evening was to have these cross-racial dialogues. And there were so many dynamics happening within this conversation. And Izu was really one of the only people to be like, okay, stop. Let's recognize this in the moment. There was, um, you know, everyone was getting a chance to speak and waiting in line to speak their turn. And a white woman cut off, was it you, Izu? Yeah, it was me. I like, we always leave out that huge part, which yeah. is like, yeah, it was it was when I was about 
I sat down and she was like, no. And then the lady was like, she's going to be the last one. And then she was like, but I need to speak. <laughs> yeah. And I called her out. I was like, this is what white privilege looks like. And everyone was like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Y'all a problem. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like after that, all of the white women in the room, saw, including myself, were like, okay, we see what we did. We're going to do better. So I remember several of us getting together. I was just chatting with the women who were sitting around me and I got all their emails and I said, let's continue this dialogue. Let's go to the wing and tell them that they need to host this monthly. And all the women were like, yes, absolutely. Um, so we went to the wing. We asked them, we were like, this was such a great dialogue, but it's clearly only the beginning. And they didn't give us any follow-up about hosting it again. So then I said, okay, well, I'll just do it in my apartment because I don't want to wait for them to get their act together. I already have this list of people who are interested. By the way, none of those white women from that night ever came to a single event that we had over the year. Interesting. Which just shows you like how quickly our enthusiasm, quote unquote, and allyship uh, can wane when we're not actually like, you know, in a situation like that where people are calling us out. So a week or two later, I ran into Izu at the same co-working space, but another location. And I feel like it was so meant to be because I was literally getting up to, you were leaving with your mom and I was literally getting up to get coffee or tea. And we like passed and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the woman from the event the other night who just called us all out. I want to talk to her. I want to invite her to these living room sessions that I want to have. So we exchanged um, numbers and sure enough, you know, she came and showed up the next week at the first of what would be many living room uh, and then larger dialogues. Yeah. And so now here we are. It's over four years later. A few months ago, you just published Real Friends Talk About Race. Congratulations. Getting great press. I, I really enjoyed uh, reading your book. And um, so I want to talk for a moment about the actual process of like bringing this book together because I find it fascinating to, to the, the idea of co-authoring a book and for the book, presumably, to to actually be like a bit of a microcosm of a cross-racial conversation between you as two co-authors, then to introduce people to the idea of the cross-racial conversations you've been having on the Kinswomen podcast that you've been doing in, in different events and trainings um, with entrepreneurs and businesses, and now offering the book itself. So there was like a bit of like a meta conversation to have about the actual writing of the book too. And as a, as a Mm -hmm. lifelong writer. I'm fascinated about that too. But about the book itself, Isu, throughout the book, you would, you perform what I imagine, like empathetically, maybe projecting, correct me if I am, what seems like a lot of emotional labor to, to illustrate so many of the ill effects of big systems of racism. I mentioned some of them earlier that you were, or I alluded to them earlier, you were talking about your experiences growing up in, in the different cultures of um, that are centered primarily in whiteness. Mm -hmm. How was the experience for you in writing and, and being the teller of this story? How did you how did you manage like this presumable burden of sharing these stories in writing? And was it an emotionally daunting undertaking for you? Yeah, it was an emotionally daunting experience uh, that I foresaw. Like I knew that this was going to be like this. Uh, and I Hannah and I tried to have a conversation at the beginning where I was just like, you know, hey, uh, this is going to be a lot. Like for me specifically, 
because uh, when you want to have a conversation about something with, that's so deep and it's so like complex and you're trying to have it with someone that means a lot, you know, means well in wanting to unpack it, unlearn it and like learn and all you're facing someone that's going to do also a lot of mistakes. And so uh, I think Hannah uh, was going through it as well and writing this book. And so I was the receiver of a lot of situations that were just like, I'm not getting enough money for this. Like a lot of the times I was just like, this is crazy. Like, but overall it just was so, I wanted it to be as close to the reality of being friends with white people as a black person as it could be. Like, I really wanted it to be like, if anything was motivating me into finishing this book and like doing this was the fact that like, I really want to demystify and de-romanticize the idea of being an interracial, like either interracial friendship or intimate relationship. And I I grew up in that. Like I, I lived in Europe, like I lived in America. I lived in families where I was a minority, where my father's white and my mom is like blacks. I know to the core what this means. And I wanted to like literally address it uh, front on and say, okay, this is really nice for us, but also let's just be super honest. So it's not like I didn't know what to expect but it's still very hard to experience. And I think I had like somewhat of like a burnout after because I was just like, I had, you know, I have other projects I'm working on and I just haven't had the energy. I've had to take time off to try to like gather myself to be able to like step out of that energy and be in something else. And I'm unpacking that now where I was just like, I was really fucking tired. And, but what helped a lot was that we didn't we didn't write it together uh hannah wrote it uh uh, on her end and i wrote it on my end and i i got to travel like i went home i went to rwanda because it's one thing to write about something that's so hard to write about where you have to be vulnerable obviously and also to be in a space where you don't feel like you're at home you know like i love new york but it's like it's not the same as me being in Rwanda and me being in Kigali. Like being in Kigali, it's like I'm not a minority. I'm like amongst my friends, my peers, people that respect me, people where I never have to like, you know, explain and 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 do so much to just exist as a human being. And so I had such a privilege. Um, my parents have a house uh, in, in Kigali. So my mom invited me. She's like, okay come and write in Kigali, like come home and write this. And I literally was given a space, like a magnificent space that I speak of in the book to write this book. And in every, at noon, I would either have a friend come over to have tea or I would go have lunch with friends. And that in the evening, I would have this like amazing dinners with friends and family. And it restored me every day. So I was just like, I couldn't have done it without having the privilege of being able to go or be in a space where I am able to recharge to finish the, the book. So that saved me. But yeah, yeah. I was really there. Got, I, got, I got, yeah, no kid. I mean, no kidding. It's like reading your experiences is an impasse. I'm just like, every time I'm like new paragraph, I'm like, fuck man, like Jesus, like it's, oh, it's, it's hard 
to know that it happens. It's a, also a privilege to know that it happens. So I thank you for that labor and sharing your story. But I, I love that you had an instinct for understanding how hard it was going to be, but then responded for the need for like a theme that keeps coming up in, in our episodes is like the need for psychological safety and the difference between feeling psychological safety and not feeling it, whether it's like in the workplace, on the street, in the United States, abroad. And it seems like retreating, like taking a retreat, like a writing retreat to home and building in these self-care that it must have helped. And because this is like, I, I work as a writing coach too, um, dredging up like traumatic experiences can be re-traumatizing. It is absolutely exhausting. Some, you know, it can burn you out at the very least. Um, and it kind of begs the question, like, why do it? You said, you said it yourself, you said, like, I'm not getting paid enough for this, but there was a, a mission in our calling, it sounds like, to really try to do your best to illustrate in one book your experience, at least, of what what cross-racial um, dialogues can, can feel like in cross-racial friendships. Hannah, for you, your side of the story also unearths a different sort of emotional experience. In the early pages, there's a lot of reckoning with white privilege and white guilt, um, feelings that you express of shame and realizing the, the more or less racially segregated nature of your education that was hiding in plain sight, as you put it. Um, and this is all, you know, growing up as as an East Coast liberal and realizing that the world was far from colorblind, like you were taught as a kid. And frankly, that I was taught too. Um, in telling your side of the story with your friendship with Isu, what kind of process did it take for you to undertake identifying these stories and experiences without maybe falling into the trap of coming across like you were the marginalized one or you were the one who was really like either the victim or the hero of this story. How did you kind of center yourself in telling those stories from your your experience? Mm, that's such a good question. I don't think I've been asked that question yet. Um, well, first of all, I just, you know, I never approached this book or or the writing as with with the understanding that I am somehow marginalized as a writer or like a, a person. Um, I just try to state the facts of my childhood and upbringing like pretty plainly without, you know, wanting any kind of like I never write to like earn sympathy or to earn points. I And oftentimes I when I say things or write things, I'm like, I this is super vulnerable and maybe it will put people off. But I just think all I have really is my vulnerability when it comes to writing about this, because obviously I'm a white woman, so I'm not experiencing racism. And there's a lot of I, I write in the book, like a lot of questions. Who am I to even write this book? Who even starting the conversations in my living room? Who, who am I to start these conversations and create this container when I have no experience, really just a desire to do this? Um, so there's reckoning with like, okay, I don't see a lot of other white women like with a desire to do this at all, let alone experience. Like if I just have to baptism by fire myself through this, like I'll just do it. But in terms of my upbringing, I was born in um, Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is a pretty large city in Pennsylvania, um, about an hour and a half from New York, an hour from Philly. And I, my, I write in the book, my upbringing was really limited to like three city blocks. I was born on one street. My school was on the same street. Our dentist, grocer, the place I was literally born at the midwifery center was two blocks away. My best friend lived up the street. We lived in row houses and everything was in like a three block radius. 
it definitely wasn't like a glamorous lifestyle. My parents, my mom worked at a theater. My dad was a writer. So they were both creatives and weren't making a lot of money. But maybe because of my mom's, my mom is deeply empathetic. And maybe because of her exposure in the theater world and bringing me along and me growing up in a theater, I was exposed to certainly the gay community, at least the white male gay community um, at an early age. And, you know, things like that, I think, start to deconstruct any ideas of it, it was just very normal. It was like, you know, there is there's nothing wrong with being gay. That was, you know, one of my first lessons as a child. I think it wasn't even a lesson. It was just life. But in terms of diversity of friends, in terms of race, we even though we lived in a diverse community and I went to a school where I was a minority in my class, it was all white kids. It, we were the the quote unquote smartest class. And there was, yeah, it was like 95 percent white. So from a very early age, there's this like hierarchy that's being internalized. And even if that didn't happen at school, I would have and was getting that through media you know, through my parents' stereotypes that they were passing down to me, like however well-meaning. Um, so after that, we moved to the suburbs and even whiter uh, or a much, much whiter um, environment that was like closer to Amish country where, where I grew up was like more urban. So I had, a, you know, a, a pretty white existence until I graduated from high school and moved to New York City for college. Um, but Back to your question, I, even though, you know, I grew up with not a lot of money and, um, you know, I'm a Jewish woman and I'm a woman, I never am positioning myself as like, what about me? You know, at least that's the hope, you know, that's the hope because I see, I, I really cringe when I see that in other people. And we talk about how in the book, I think it's a common impulse for white people to want to be like, oh, I get it. I get your oppression because I also you know, X, Y, Z. But I think often that can just shut down a conversation and we don't really, it doesn't really lead to like a deeper understanding of intersectionality, uh, the dynamics of white supremacy, things like that. Yeah. And, and the like misconstruing an opportunity to empathize with someone's situation as like unintentionally center, centering, like recentering yourself in the story and taking this, the, centering of the person of color's story off of them. I'm, I'm probably guilty of that too. And trying to like articulate like, oh, okay, I'm experiencing this and I'm trying to relate and unintentionally like you're, you're kind of like taking the attention back from you almost like how at, at the event that you were both attending, uh, Isu, the woman interrupted you and was trying to, to make her point in a very counterproductive and harmful way. Um, but thank you both for, for sharing those stories and experiences in the writing as well as in what uh, is articulated in your book. And, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about the reading of your book is so much an experience in getting to know more about who you are as people and what you've lived in your experiences, which I think illustrates so much of like getting in relationship to yourself is seems to be a really essential part if you're if you are to interact and be in these um, diverse friendships with with a diverse group of people. The importance of knowing yourself and where you come from and how you see the world and being kind of like omnipresent as as best as best you can so that you're constantly working to illuminate these blind spots and also really like hold the ones you love in a in a really respectful manner. 
there is also in the content of your book, it's not just about each of your own uh, stories. There's something called the four pillars, which I found to be a fascinating concept too. So the four pillars, as you describe them, are basically like core foundational needs, as I understand it, for building trust in cross-racial dialogue, especially. So trust is essential for having cross-racial dialogue. How do we actually like nurture these conversations in a really constructive way, an equitable way? And those four pillars are time, transparency, communication, and consistency. So I wonder if we can talk about them a little bit, and then the readers will have to, uh, our listeners will have to get the book to, to read the rest. Isu, the first pillar, time. I was struck when you wrote, when you're white, you need time to sit and understand profoundly. Could you tell us a little bit about that sentiment, about why as a white person in what is effectively a white supremacist society, there's the, the urge to like suddenly, urgently, all at once, like become an ally or to prove something or to like hurry your way into trying to help can actually be very toxic in your experience. Yeah, I think the urgency comes from guilt. It's like embedded in the guilt of wanting to like, let me try to wash this guilt off as fast as possible by doing the least as possible. <laughs> I have the most recognition for it. And it's not a math that math well, especially for people of color that have been doing this for so long. And I've like suffered and died and been imprisoned and like have had to sacrifice so much and continue to sacrifice so much in order to make things change. It's disrespectful and it's an insult to people's like intelligence. So uh, when you said that it's what you mentioned earlier, where like this book is really calling for people to sit with themselves uh, more than anything. And it's just like these pillars are like, Basically, if you take out the race part, it's like, how are you a good friend? And how are you like, how are you, how to be genuine? And to be genuine, you have to like, basically follow, like if you follow these four, these pillars, it's the same thing. And time is like accepting that all this harm that was done through centuries cannot be fixed with one individual, with one click from one book, from one conversation. And it's just going to be like a, a time is gives us the opportunity to learn, to unpack, to discover who we are in this dynamic, to see who we've been in this dynamic and what we continue to do. And so um, uh, instead of trying to chase washing of guilt, it's rather sitting with that guilt and understanding where this guilt is uh, rooted from. Like, why do you feel so much guilt and where does it come from and when you find that out then you can unpack it and figure out like okay well you know this is how i can address it and this is how i can like un unpack it and then become a better person and i don't think we speak of this eyelashship process like that we think that like you just have to be a good person and then then you you know you are an ally and it's just like that's just not it <laughs> we talk about um intergenerational trauma uh, transmitted through genes, like through through like literally our bodies um, and affecting us mentally and emotionally. And it's just like, that's for the person that comes, for the people that come from like a historically oppressed group. Uh, there are studies that were proven through people that survived the Holocaust and their dissidents. And now there's a study being done on the survivors of uh, the genocide in 1994 against the Tutsis in Rwanda. And so 
we're going to find the same things. But if we look on the other side, there's going to have to be some type of um, something that stayed, something that like, uh, and I think the tip of that iceberg is the guilt. It's the guilt that you feel. And so unpacking that, addressing that is absolutely the first step. And before you can become allied to anything and to anyone. I, I really appreciate you describing like the essence of the book as like how to be a good friend and how to be genuine because there is a lot about knowing what your boundaries are. Um, you know, especially as a person of color, it feels like being a person of color in a in a white centered and like white supremacist society, it like kind of forces a person of color to have to constantly be navigating boundaries. I I personally feel like there's socially there's just like a real lack of understanding of boundaries i don't know if it's because the internet and technology just totally messed up our like senses of like time and space and respect for things um just like interpersonally but the essence it sounds like of knowing what your boundaries are communicating expectations like respect um really important and yet in in feeling so essential like so fundamentally human and yet something that it feels like we're losing a sense of or losing grasp of interpersonally these days. Uh, and again, like I said, I don't know if it's because of the internet age or something else that's happening more broadly socially, or just because I'm getting old and feel like an old man and, and, and I'm losing touch with the culture. I don't know, but, um, the essence of being a good friend and being genuine, but also sitting with discomfort and, and Hannah, I want to turn it over to you because the second pillar of transparency you wrote, and this is a quote, there's no guarantee of comfort when it comes to talking about race. And I feel like that is something we've been highlighting throughout this conversation. And this idea that avoiding the discomfort and, and like you so was beautifully saying, the like impulse, the reactive impulse, like if you say something wrong, or you do something wrong, you feel guilty to just be like, I'm sorry, or to like rush into trying to make yourself feel better through what you're externalizing. And I wonder if you've had any um, experiences yourself in the work that you've been doing and the conversations you've been having with the kinswomen along with you. So, and now in promoting your book, have any conversations come up about like this dynamic of like discomfort and avoidance, whether explicitly or implicitly? Has it has it been a theme to any conversations around people drifting away from the discomfort of this stuff? Absolutely. I think one of the things Izu said so early on was discomfort doesn't kill. And we really need to recognize that as white people when it comes to this work, it will feel uncomfortable and it, our nervous system might tell us like that there's a threat, but we need to recognize that there is a very large gap between feeling discomfort and actually being threatened. And as white people, we are often very safe, much safer than our friends, colleagues, partner, partners of color. So Leading into the discomfort is something that's really necessary. And in the book, we talk about how, like I write about how, for me, like that comes up in so many areas of my life when it comes to talking about money sometimes, when it comes to talking about body or self-worth. There are a lot of conversations we avoid, whether it's just with ourselves, like getting honest with ourselves. So they're neat, like going back to the pillar of time too, like taking the time to really recognize what your capacity for discomfort is being honest about how you react when you are uncomfortable when it comes to really anything. And then specifically these conversations, like I've, when I'm uncomfortable, um, I can react with avoidance, defensiveness, um, you know, shutting down, 
um, you know, redirecting. I mean, a lot of common things that people do when they're uncomfortable, but we're just we never really articulate. So this this work is really so much about getting right with ourselves. It's not about the outward allyship. It's about learning in public, the transparency of being messy along the way. Like a couple years ago, we did a um, an event with Columbia um, University and I was chatting and I said the word, I, I said the term like they as white people or something. I removed myself from whiteness with my language and somebody called it out in the comments and um, I was really appreciative to have a like that accountability and just spotlight on what I had done wrong in that moment so that I could correct it. And now I'm super conscious of it. And when it when I do say, you know, trying to separate myself from, from whiteness, either with language or, or ideology or or thought, I'm like, why am why am I doing this? You know, it's just it's just like getting curious about our own reflexive biases, our defensiveness, our the stereotypes that we hold. That's some of the most important work that we do. Not going to a protest and like or like waving a pride flag. Like those, I'm not saying those things are bad, but those can just be masks for like our own defensiveness, like Izu was saying. Yeah. And I want to. I want. We're starting to round down the conversation here, and thank you both for for your time and education and all the work that you're doing. I feel like we could have this conversation for a lot, lot longer, and maybe that's kind of the point. It's going to have to be a lot, lot longer of a conversation to be constructive and and long lasting in a practice, and it's going to evolve and so forth uh, for each of us. Um, but I want to ask you each uh, about the value of doing this work, and I want to ask you if the if the like deep why to do this kind of work. And we keep using that word work, right? And it's very popular to do it, like do the work, show the work, you know, do the work, do the work. Um, when we talk about things that are not only hard, but really emotionally uncomfortable and really challenging. We've seen socially in the last few years that uh, a big spike in, in uh, attention um, to the Black Lives Matter movement, to change, to uh, promising a lot of effort to change systems of oppression and marginalization and racism in the West, especially. We've seen a big push for DEI movements and initiatives that have sadly now statistics and reporting is showing this year is dropping off precipitously as companies are cutting costs and they're targeting DEI initiatives and DEI employees first and foremost, disproportionately affecting um, uh, Black Americans, especially. And so the question I think we're going to be asking in months to come is, why do we keep doing the work and how do we keep doing the work now that there are now that there's like either explicit pushback or a lot of people are moving on and, and looking at and focusing on different things? It's no longer cool. It's no longer trendy. And you're no longer rewarded, maybe we should say, as a white person to be saying that you're doing this work or committed to doing this work or listening or educating yourself. Isu, may I start with you? I wonder if you have a response to that about why to continue doing the work. I think that people need to do the work because they care. I can't, like, I can't um, convince people. Uh, we literally had, it's shocking to me because it's like, 
um, this question is asked and has been asked often, like, why should I be an ally? And it's just like, I can't possibly convince you to care about things that are inevitably going to affect you. Like, if there's going to be something, it's like, because we speak of these issues as a community issue, as a they problem, we feel like if sh- like if shit hits the the like hits the fan there, it's not going to affect me. But the reality of things is like we're all interconnected. If we live in the same society, things are not going well. Like in a certain community, it's going to spill in other communities. That's why minority communities have to have conversation with one another and have to intersect and have to uh, bend together, like bind together and work together against white supremacy. And that's why like people really need to form and practice their critical thinking. Because I think that we've sat in the idea that racism looks a certain type of way, but we have not realized that uh, racism, uh, xenophobia, anti-Semitism just morphs morphs and presents itself in such in a, a much more insidious uh and hidden way but like by you know cultivating these conversations and cultivating these like exchange you're able to see things that you might not be able to see because it's not it's not just like in your face if that makes sense and so like one example is uh for example the the act that was confirmed for the uh, native community for the children to be able to stay within their community, not to be adopted outside of their community. Because a bunch of white moms uh, decided that it wasn't fair that they didn't get to uh, adopt Native American children. Which to me is insane because it's just like, this act was created to try to preserve and to try to repair uh, uh, gross acts of brutality and genocide on people on American soil. And not too long ago, by the way, and it continues to affect the Native community. And here you are with, like, these white women that are just like, I really want to be able to adapt whatever I want. And, like, why can't I? And it's just like, because people are not critically thinking as to why this is connected inherently to white supremacy and why it's connected to the issues that we're experiencing as collectively as a community, we're not able to pinpoint and be like, this is racist. Like, this is problematic. Um, and so I just... If, if there has to be a reason, it's because it's going to affect you. It's going to affect you sooner or later. It's going to attack what you love the most, what you care the most about. Like women issue, when you have um, minority women fighting for women issue, white women benefit from this fight directly. And this is an historically proven and shown, right? And it's like, but if you don't show up for yourself, and if you think this is a woman of color issue and you don't think that it's going to affect you, then you don't get it that it's going to touch you. You are going to have problems. So you have conservative women that voted for things that are just so extremely conservative, hurting themselves. And don't even realize that like this is all part of like the white supremacist ideology that touches like how women are supposed to be, how men are supposed to be, how children are supposed to be. You have people voting laws where children can work now earlier. It's not a BIPOC issue anymore. This is a all of us issue. When voting for laws are just like hurting. It's a system. It's a culture that just permits it. And so connecting the dot is the first action that I would ask people to do in order to understand why you should care. Not because of me, not because you love black people, not because love is just, that's not the point. 
it's the repair, the restore, and also for yourself so that your own family and yourself don't experience these things. It's an all of us issue. That's going to be ringing in my ears for some time. Thank you, Sue. Hannah, we only have about a minute left, but same question to you. It's a big question to try to answer in a short period of time, but what's, yeah. what comes up for you hearing Isu and, and, and for yourself? I just think about, you know, the the empathy of hindsight is something that comes up for me. Like when we think about injustice in the past, whether it's the Holocaust, whether it's, you know, white adults screaming at black children who are trying to integrate schools in the 1950s and 60s, we think, how could white people stand by and do that? Not only stand by, but like actively antagonize and endanger the lives of black children. Or even like more recently, this is kind of a weird example. We look back and we're like, how could we slut shame Monica Lewinsky when she was 22 and the power imbalance was like so crazy because like it was the president. We have this this like em- em- empathetic hindsight, but when it comes to the present day, we never really investigate, like, how are we going to have to live with ourselves in the future and what can we do now? So we need to kind of take that stance. Like, we're not really any better than those people who stood by because if we're not doing anything. We just think, oh, we're, we're neutral. We're good people. We, you know, we vote. But if we're not really actively, you know, making progress and working to combat white supremacy internally and externally, like we can't point fingers at other people or the past. Or I think about like mothers, people who have children, like Izu was saying, when it directly impacts you and it eventually will, I see moms, you know, friends or just people on social media become activists because they have children now. So they're fighting for child health, child safety, you know, maternal care, things like that, because it impacts them personally and they recognize it. But this really, like, the myth is that this doesn't already all impact us personally. So that's the kind of mindset we have to have when it comes to this work, as you say. Iso, Paul Fleet, Vuktana Bana, and Hannah Summerhell. They are the hosts of the award-winning podcast, Kinswomen, which streams everywhere, and the co-authors of the 2023 book, Real Friends Talk About Race, Bridging the Gaps Through Uncomfortable Conversations. You can find the Kinswomen, their book, e-courses, tools, and resources at kinswomenpodcast.com. Isu and Hannah, thank you both so much for joining us for your work and for sharing these lessons and stories from your friendship with us all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. This was a great conversation. Absolutely. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Please rate and review our show, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other listeners find our show and know that it's truly worth listening to. We worked real hard to bring you these interviews. We hope you've been enjoying the new content we've been delivering up to you weekly. Stick around, stay tuned for more interviews coming down the pike. Until next time, dear listener, story on. Story on.